Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, I covered the early history of Boeing from its founding to the early years of World War II when the pioneering aviation company was making long-range bombers with the designation B-17. Now, I didn't get to this factoid, but at its peak production in 1944, airplane manufacturers were producing 16 B-17s in 24 hours. Now, that wasn't just Boeing's factories, mind you, though Boeing was the company that designed the B-17. Other manufacturers got the license to produce that same design in order to meet the military's need for more aircraft. Today, we're going to continue the company's history, largely through World War II, because a lot happened with Boeing at that point. And we're also going to talk about some other military aircraft, as well as the commercial aircraft that Boeing would become known for. In fact, let's start with a passenger aircraft that Boeing was working on while it was also ramping up production of the B-17s. 
So in the mid-1930s, this is before the United States was in World War II, the airline Pan American Airways, better known as Pan Am at the time, wanted more aircraft capable of making the transatlantic flight between Europe and North America. Pan Am was one of many companies that sprung up in the 1920s to meet the demand of carrying airmail and then evolved into a passenger service airline. The airline already had a few aircraft from another manufacturing company called Martin. So Boeing bid on this Pan Am contract and won. The contract called for the design of a flying boat, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about that type of aircraft. So unlike a seaplane, a flying boat doesn't have pontoon landing gear nor does it have wheels to land on firm ground. Instead, the fuselage of the plane itself is designed to float, and the aircraft lands and takes off from the water, so it looks like a boat with wings. These aircraft could be quite large because they used very large bodies of water as airports. So there was no need to build runways or landing strips that could be large enough to accommodate them. And that was a real limiting factor on early airports. You would go out and build an airport with a landing strip and, you know, a, a, you know some, some uh, takeoff strips. And everything was sized to the planes of the time. But that meant as they built larger planes, they wouldn't fit on those older airports. Well, this got around that because the airport was essentially the ocean or very large lakes, and those were huge. There was no need to worry about the size constraints. Boeing used much of the design for their bomber prototype, the XB-15, to serve as the foundation for this new commercial aircraft. Uh, This was the same prototype that served as the starting point for the B-17 design. So the end result was a four-engine plane, uh, propeller engines, mind you, not jet engines, and the plane was called the Model 314 Clipper. Because the aircraft had a max speed of 188 miles per hour, or 303 kilometers per hour, and its cruising speed was closer to 155 miles per hour, or 249 kilometers per hour, there weren't that many seats aboard the aircraft. This allowed for a seating plan in which the seats could be converted into beds, because a flight could take 20 hours or so if you're going across the ocean. If it's going to be a 20-hour flight, you need to have a lot of space for people to be able to recline and sleep. I mean, that's almost a full day of flying. Pan Am really pulled out all the stops, which now that I think about it is another example of a tech phrase based off of a largely obsolete type of technology. Anyway, they made service aboard these planes a real luxury. It was high-class travel, and so it was for a very small population of disgustingly wealthy people. And I might be showing a bit of envy here, but anyway, this was one example of a civilian aircraft that Boeing would make around the same time that it was starting production on those B-17 bombers for the military. Now, that luxury experience wasn't always a smooth one because the Model 314 Clipper wasn't a pressurized aircraft. So that meant it actually had to fly at lower altitudes, which also meant it would have to fly below or through weather disturbances. So you could encounter some pretty rough turbulence depending upon the weather uh, along your flight route. 
And around that same time, Boeing designed and built a commercial transport aircraft that could fly much higher because it had a pressurized cabin. It could maintain a higher air pressure inside the aircraft than would be outside the aircraft at altitude. This particular aircraft had the designation of Model 307, but it was better known as the Stratoliner. And we're going to get a lot of Strato aircraft in this episode. Now, the Stratoliner was based off of Boeing's B-17 design directly. It was not based off the XB-15 experimental aircraft. Like the 314 Clipper, the Stratoliner was an aircraft that Boeing had built for Pan Am, and it started manufacturing and testing these airplanes in 1938. These would be the first passenger aircraft to offer pressurized cabins, and they were also propeller planes. The pressurization allowed the aircraft to climb to higher altitudes without the pesky issue of subjecting passengers to low air pressure, where the air isn't thick enough for you to actually get a good lungful. So that meant that you could have a pressurized cabin and the passengers could, you know, remain conscious. The Stratoliner had a limited ability to pressurize the cabin. You couldn't actually climb up to the stratosphere in a Stratoliner, but it was still a pretty remarkable feat of engineering. The Stratoliner had a passenger capacity of 33, and it would have a crew of six on top of that. While the initial plan was to use them for commercial air travel, both across the ocean and as coast-to-coast -coast service in the United States, World War II would mean that many of these aircraft would be purchased by the United States military to be used as transport for personnel. And in the military, the Stratoliner would receive the designation of C-75. the exact same aircraft, although with the amenities really stripped out, it didn't need to be quite so fancy for military use, but it got a new designation. I should also add that the Stratoliner marked one of Boeing's big tragedies. On March 18, 1939, Boeing was demonstrating the Stratoliner for a Dutch airline called KLM. A KLM technical director named Albert von Baumhauer served as co-pilot on this test flight. And there was a Boeing test pilot who was serving as the captain. There were eight other people on the plane as well, one of them from TWA. Most of the rest were either from Boeing or the Dutch Air Ministry. And during the test, the pilot lost control of the aircraft and the aircraft went into a dive and the pilot was unable to recover, and so the Stratoliner crashed, and all of the people aboard died in the plane crash. After an investigation, Boeing engineers would add more components to the flight control system of the Stratoliner, mainly a dorsal fin that would help with rudder control on the tail, and thus improved its safety that way. But this was a very tragic way to learn that lesson. There's another Stratoliner incident I should mention, one that didn't have a tragic ending, but it's interesting because this was a relatively recent event. Now, keep in mind, these aircraft originally flew in the 1940s, but the incident I'm talking about happened on March 28, 2002, so not that long ago. A 307 Stratoliner registered to the National Air and Space Museum and operated by Boeing was to go through a pretty routine series of tests. There were two pilots and two test engineers aboard the plane, and it was to take off and land about three times. And it was flying between two different airstrips, uh, one in Everett, Washington, and one in Seattle, Washington, that belonged specifically to Boeing. And 
Meanwhile, it was supposed to go through some routine maneuvers along the way. The first flight from Seattle to Everett went off without a hitch. But the second flight, the return trip from Everett to Seattle, was a different story. In fact, there are two different stories. So here's how the official story unravels. Shortly after takeoff from Everett's Payne Field, the number three engine, so like the 314, the uh, liner had four propeller engines. The number three engine experienced a surge, then it normalized. And it was at that point that the crew decided to scrap all the maneuvering test plans that they had in store and instead just fly straight to the Seattle landing strip and land at Boeing Field. On approach to Boeing Field, a light in the cockpit indicated a problem with the landing gear on the left side of the plane. So they aborted the initial landing, because clearly there was something going on with the landing gear, and they went into an orbit pattern around Boeing Field. The captain manually hand-cranked the landing gear so it was down into place until the indicator light lit up green, letting you know the landing gear was fully extended. But that wasn't the end of their problems. While the landing gear was now down, before the crew could go into an approach course for landing, that third engine indicated a loss in fuel pressure and then failed completely. The other three engines also began to indicate lower fuel pressure, and the captain feathered the engines. The captain determined that the aircraft didn't have sufficient fuel pressure to make it back to Boeing Field, and so he chose to make an emergency water landing in Elliott Bay. The crew got the aircraft down into the water, where the airplane remained afloat, and all of the crew were able to evacuate the Stratoliner, and they were whisked off to safety. The plane was later retrieved from the bay. It had to be crane-lifted out of it. But here's the other story. Now, first of all, I have to say, this other story cites unnamed sources. So we have to take this with an enormous grain of salt, because it could be totally untrue. But this story states that the Boeing pilots were actually funding this test flight out of pocket, that they were essentially doing this because they both really wanted to fly a Stratoliner. I mean, this was a classic propeller plane. And they had actually planned on doing some circuits, meaning they were going to fly around and have fun in this giant aircraft. And that's kind of understandable. I mean, it is a historic aircraft, and they were paying for it themselves. So you could think, all right, well, it might seem a little, you know, silly, but it also seems reasonable. I mean, if they're paying for everything, except obviously things didn't turn out okay. So according to this version of the story, the pilots only paid for about 300 gallons of fuel when they were at Boeing for the beginning of their trip. And their initial plan was they would fly the aircraft to Payne Field and they would do a little few circuits, but then they would land at Payne Field and refuel at Payne Field because at Payne Field, the gas was slightly cheaper. Or really, the airplane fuel was slightly cheaper. And they could use that fuel for the rest of their flight shenanigans. But apparently, at some point along the way here, having all this fun, the pilots forgot about this. Maybe they were enjoying flying the Stratoliner too much. And they failed to refuel the plane sufficiently. So they took off from Payne Field for trip number two, and they had not properly refueled. And they started flying circuits again, taking the plane out on a joyride. And engine three sputtered and died because there wasn't enough fuel in the system. They feathered the engine, and they decided they needed to land the aircraft. 
And that's when they found out that the landing gear couldn't lower. And why couldn't the landing gear lower? Well, the power for the landing gear would normally be provided by engine three, but they had feathered engine three. Effectively, they had shut down the engine. So the engine could not provide the power to lower the landing gear, which meant they had to lower it manually. And then they decided they would go back to Boeing Field rather than land back at Payne. Remember, Payne is where they took off, but they decided rather than return to that that landing strip, which might have actually been closer before they started doing all their circuits and stuff, they decided to keep on going toward Boeing. And making matters more confusing is that the Stratoliner maintenance facility was at Payne. So why fly back to Boeing Field? Well, again, according to this unnamed source in this story, it's because the crew wanted to go back to Boeing Field because that's where they parked their cars. So it would be inconvenient if they landed in pain to get everything maintained and fixed. Now, if this version of the story is true, the failure was on the part of the flight crew, not the aircraft. Now, again, I have no clue if the details of that story are true, but it was pretty big news in Seattle in 2002 that Boeing had to ditch a Stratoliner in that bay. So Boeing was making civilian aircraft for airlines and bombers for the U.S. military leading up to the United States entering World War II, which happened in December 1941. In 1939, a former Boeing leader came back to see the company through the massive wartime production operations, and that was Philip G. Johnson, who had worked for Boeing since 1917, and then he rose to the level of president of United Aircraft and Transport Company. That was the holding company of Boeing's various uh, businesses. But then the government, the U.S. government, forced that company to break apart. So he left Boeing in 1933 and then established Trans-Canada Airlines. However, he returned to Boeing to serve as the president. He was responsible for the company's performance during wartime. And when we come back, I'll talk about the B-29 Super Fortress and how Boeing switched into full-on military mode. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, 
With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. It's hard to stress exactly how much the bombing of Pearl Harbor affected the United States. Not only did it mean the U.S. would officially declare war and enter World War II, it was also a terrifying example of how aircraft could pose as a serious threat. One of the actions Boeing took was to disguise its manufacturing facilities so that, when viewed from the air, the facilities looked like a nondescript community. They built makeshift houses of stuff like burlap, and they put those on the rooftops of their buildings so that it looked like it was just a, a, a little poor community instead of buildings that were housing aircraft manufacturing facilities. But inside those buildings, Boeing was ramping up production on the B-17 bomber. And in their manufacturing facilities in Renton, Washington, and Wichita, Kansas, the company prepared to make another long-range bomber, the B-29 Super Fortress. The military had determined that Boeing's B-17 would be suitable for use in the European theater during World War II, but that a different aircraft would be required for the Pacific theater. There was a need for aircraft that could carry a heavier bomb payload many thousands of miles. So Boeing was one of several companies to submit a proposal, and along with manufacturing companies Martin, Douglas, and Lockheed, Boeing was invited to build a prototype of its design for military consideration. 
Lockheed and Douglas would both cancel their projects before they actually got to the prototype stage. They ultimately determined that it wasn't a profitable approach for them. The Army Air Corps, which would officially become the U.S. Army Air Forces in 1941, would choose Boeing's design as their primary bomber. And then Martin's design, the B-32, served as a backup. Boeing delivered some prototypes and before long entered into full production mode. The need was greater than what Boeing could accomplish on its own in its own facilities. And so a Bell aircraft manufacturing plant and a Martin facility also would end up producing some B-29 aircraft. Also, this was the age of Rosie the Riveter. That's the iconic image of a woman dressed for manufacturing work. She's flexing her muscles, looking really powerful. Well, that wasn't just an example of propaganda. The workforces in these facilities were largely made up of women because the male working force was largely off at war. So most of these aircraft were primarily put together by women. The B-29 relied on an 11-person crew. That included the pilot, the co-pilot. You had several gunners. You had the bombardier. You had the navigator. There were a couple of others as well. The B-29 was heavier than the B-17. It weighed in at 74,500 pounds when empty, or 33,793 kilograms. And it was also longer than the B-17. It also had a wider wingspan than the B-17. The aircraft would be used extensively in the Pacific, and it had pressurized sections so that the crew could move through them even when the plane was flying at high altitudes. One exception of this was for the poor guy who served as the tail gunner. So the tail gunner position itself was pressurized. I mean, that only makes sense. You need to have a conscious gunner in that position. But the area immediately around the tail gunner position, which was, you know, sealed off from the rest of the aircraft, that area wasn't pressurized. So if you were the tail gunner, you would get into the tail gunner position before the aircraft had climbed into that higher altitude. You'd seal yourself in, your position would be pressurized, and then you'd be stuck there until the aircraft had descended to a low enough altitude where you could get out without having the problems of of low air pressure. So that must have been pretty confining. Four of the machine gun turrets on the B-29 were capable of operation via remote control, which was a real innovation at the time. It meant that two crew members could control the four turrets. And like the B-17, most of the guns aboard the B-29 were 50 caliber machine guns. It was a B-29 superfortress called the Enola Gay that would carry the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Another B-29 called Boxcar dropped the one on Nagasaki. These two attacks would be the first and the last nuclear attacks in history so far. Hopefully, they represent the last one ever. The B-29 project would actually be the most expensive military project in World War II. It was, in fact, more expensive than the Manhattan Project. That was the project that was responsible for developing and building the atomic bombs. But the B-29 cost more money. During World War II, Boeing also lost its company president. Philip G. Johnson, whom I mentioned just before the break, he died from a massive stroke as he was overseeing operations in the Wichita, Kansas manufacturing facility in 1944. Claremont Claire Ectvet, whose name I continue to butcher, 
but he had served as president of Boeing from 1933 to 1939, would actually step back into the position for the remainder of World War II as a sort of an interim president. And then he would hand the company over to William M. Allen in 1945. Boeing made a couple of other military aircraft during World War II besides the famous B-17 and B-29 bombers. Uh, you may have heard about the B-50 Superfortress. Now, to be fair, the B-50 was really a redesignation of what was originally called a B-29D. So it was part of the B-29 Superfortress family, but then got rebranded, if you will, into a B-50. Boeing also made a long-range cargo military aircraft called the Strato Freighter, and it also made a fighter plane, the XF-8B. This was a single-engine propeller plane intended for the U.S. Navy as not just a fighter, but also like a torpedo bomber. Boeing produced a prototype in 1944, but World War II was over before the company was scheduled to enter into full production mode, so the project was scrapped with only three aircraft, all prototypes, ever built. Boeing would also take the design of the C-97 Stratofreighter and then refit it to serve as a commercial passenger aircraft. The new design needed a new name, which would become the Boeing 377 Stratocruiser. Boeing's customer was, once again, Pan Am. This aircraft was a bit more posh than the military variant, as you might imagine. There were different passenger configurations for the Stratocruiser, but generally it could hold between 63 and 84 passengers, with a crew of four. The main cabin had a staircase that led down to a lower deck, and the lower deck actually served as a drinks lounge. Very, very, you know, like kind of swinging, you know? I feel like I should remind you guys that these aircraft were all propeller airplanes. These are not jet engine aircraft yet. We're not quite there. So this was considered, you know, very swanky kind of travel arrangements. Back when, you know, traveling on an airplane was a big deal and usually only the well-to-do could afford to ever set foot on them. While I'm on the Stratocruiser, I should talk about that aircraft's safety record because it's pretty dismal. Uh, right now, the 737 MAX aircraft from Boeing is in the news due to some truly horrible accidents that have happened with it. But that's not the first aircraft from Boeing to have problems that led to tragedy. Now, it seems like the main fault for the Stratocruiser lay in the choice of propellers. At the time of its construction, Boeing had essentially two choices for propellers for the Stratocruiser. One was made by Curtis Electric, and the other was made by Hamilton Standard. The Curtis Electric propeller blades were heavier and more complex from an electromechanical perspective and probably more expensive, too. The Hamilton Standard propeller blades would rely on a hydraulic system, so mechanically they were simpler, and they were also 400 pounds lighter than the Curtis Electric propeller blades. So Boeing went with the Hamilton Standard ones. They were lighter and they were less complicated. Unfortunately, the Stratocruiser's operations sometimes placed more force on those propellers and their engines than they were rated to withstand, and that would lead to the propellers becoming unbalanced, which would then cause powerful vibrations that could damage the engines, sometimes ripping them clear off the aircraft, as appeared to be the case on April 29, 1952. That's when a Stratocruiser en route to New York from Rio de Janeiro crashed in the Brazilian jungle. All 50 people aboard that plane died in the crash. 
This was the worst of the tragedies involving the Stratocruiser, but sadly, it was not the only one. There were others as well. There were enough incidents to lead the FAA to issue an airworthiness directive about the Hamilton Standard propeller blades. And while several accidents were traced to problems with propellers and ultimately with a sealant that was used to hold these hollow propellers together, other accidents had other causes. It wasn't the only cause of accidents aboard Stratocruisers. One involved a cabin door being improperly sealed, and upon climbing to cruising altitude and achieving its pressurized uh, status, that door ultimately failed and the cabin suffered explosive decompression and it resulted in one passenger dying. Uh, truly awful, awful events. Between 1947 to 1950, Boeing would manufacture 56 Stratocruisers. And during the time of their operation, a total of 139 people died in accidents involving Stratocruisers, the last of which took place in 1970 with a converted Stratocruiser that was meant to carry heavy aircraft parts. Now, I got to backtrack just a bit because we were in the 1940s and then I just went down the Stratocruiser line. But in 1946, Boeing signed a contract to develop what was called the Ground-to-Air Pilotless Aircraft. And from that name, it sounds like it could be a remote-controlled drone. But that's not it. That was actually the name for a two-stage missile designed to fly faster than the speed of sound, the first missile Boeing ever designed. It was an anti-aircraft missile meant to intercept aircraft that could fly up to 700 miles per hour, or 1,126 kilometers per hour, and up to altitudes of 8,000 feet, or 2,438 meters. The GAPA, as it was called, G-A-P-A, never saw active use in defense, but did serve as the basis for future missiles designed by Boeing. Also in 1946, Boeing agreed to supply two prototype aircraft, designated XB-47, to the Army Air Forces. This was a long-range bomber designed with six turbojet engines. So jet engines, not propeller engines. It also had a swept wing design, which means the wings weren't at a straight 90-degree angle out from the body of the aircraft. The wings of the XB-47 were angled back with respect to the aircraft's cockpit. So... Uh, that's how most swept-wing aircraft are. There are a few that actually have wings that are angled forward rather than backward. During World War II, the German military had settled on swept-wing designs for high-speed aircraft. They found that they were more stable and could withstand the forces better than straight-winged aircraft. So after the war, those designs would find their ways into aircraft plans in the former Allied nations, including the United States. And wind tunnel tests confirmed that the design was far more stable for high-speed aircraft than the straight-winged version. So that was the design for the XB-47. The engines of the XB-47, uh, the nickname of which was the Stratojet, were in what were called pods uh, or nacelles. These were suspended under the wings of the jet. And like I said, there were six engines. So on each wing, you had two engines that were side by side in a single nacelle that was closest to the body of the aircraft. And then the third engine for that side was suspended toward the end of the wing. So it's a pretty funky looking bomber. And if you listen to my episode about jet engines, you'll remember that they're a little challenging to get going when you're on the ground. Once you're traveling at an appropriate speed through the air, the air rushing through the jet engines is sufficient for it to maintain operation. But at rest, that doesn't work. So these XB-47 jets had to have a little help 
when they needed to take off. And that help came in the form of 18 rocket units in the fuselage. So those rockets would ignite uh, for takeoff, and the XB-47 would have what was called a jet-assisted takeoff, or JATO, J-A-T-O. And the XB-47 would also have to deploy a drag parachute to slow its speed when it was coming in for a landing. The XB-47 became the model for the B-47 bomber. That bomber only needed armament in the rear of the plane because it moved so fast that no fighter aircraft of the time could attack it from any angle but from behind. So the B-47 would become the backbone of the new United States Air Force Strategic Air Command, which operated the bombers from 1951 to 1965. Now, I'm going to take another quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk about a few more aircraft that emerged in the years following World War II, as well as Boeing's attempt to get into commercial jet airliners. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options see homedepot.com slash delivery for details the home depot how doers get more done okay so i mentioned the xb47 agreement happened in 1946 that same year boeing also landed a contract to design the b-52 long range bomber The B-47 would have six engines, the B-52 had eight, with engines paired up in nacelles. But that's not how the design first began. The original plan for the B-52 was for it to be a six-engine propeller bomber with a straight-wing design. Those plans were obliterated in 1948 when a military official said, nah, we want a jet-powered bomber. So the design team that had been working on the B-52 for two years pulled a crazy weekend shift to come up with an all-new jet-powered design with a swept-wing approach. The Air Force ordered 13 B-52s, and Boeing built three that were designated B-52A, but then converted production toward a new model called the B-52B. It followed the same design, but it had larger engines and could carry more weight. Between 1952 and 1962, Boeing would produce 744 B-52s. Later versions were more powerful and could fly further. The B-52H, first flown in 1961, is an aircraft that, believe it or not, is still in service with the U.S. military today, and it's expected to remain in service into the 2050s. That's a phenomenal aircraft. Oh, and the B-52 also had a nickname. It was the Stratofortress. Of course it was. Boeing wasn't done with propeller aircraft either. It also built the L-15 Scout, which was a short takeoff and landing aircraft with a single engine, propeller engine. The, The company only made a dozen of them, which ultimately found their way into use in the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Now, as we've seen in this episode... For many years, Boeing was relying heavily on military contracts for revenue. The conclusion of World War II meant that those contracts were becoming less frequent. The company was eager to diversify and to find other means of generating revenue, and so we come to one of the more odd elements of Boeing's history, the introduction of a gas turbine engine for a truck in 1950. So in other words, a jet-powered truck, sort of. Boeing was partnered with another Seattle-based company, the truck company Kenworth. The truck company had helped with Boeing's manufacturing runs earlier during the war. And so Boeing outfitted a Kenworth truck with a 175-horsepower gas turbine engine. 
The gas turbine seemed to have some pretty clear advantages, at least on paper. It weighed a fraction of the traditional diesel engines that were used in large trucks. It could also accept lots of different kinds of fuel, including gasoline, diesel, and even kerosene. The engine was also smaller. It took up just 13% of the same physical space as a diesel engine. But when it came to performance, the gas turbine engine just couldn't match the traditional diesel engines. The, The truck went on a test run, actually several test runs, between Seattle and Los Angeles. And according to some reports, these trips were taking several hours longer than a run in a normal diesel truck. The performance was just lacking. The trucks couldn't accelerate really well. They were putting way too much exhaust out. And there was also a little issue with fuel economy. Uh, It was down to a dismal one mile per gallon of fuel. Yikes. Boeing would continue to work on gas turbine engines for land vehicles and eventually landed a contract with a company called American La France, which put them into fire trucks. And the stories behind those were also pretty interesting since it sounded like the crew's using those trucks had to find creative workarounds to compensate for the shortcomings of the engines, but they also said that they were really fun to operate. So I guess that's the trade-off. Also in 1950, Boeing submitted a proposal for the Bowmark missile. This was a design that incorporated stuff that Boeing engineers had learned while making those GAPA missiles back in 1946. The Bowmark was the first long-range anti-aircraft missile in the world, and unlike GAPA, this would be a missile that Boeing would actually mass-produce. While World War II was long over, the Cold War was really ramping up, and the U.S. military had deep concerns about the then-Soviet Union's military capabilities, including the development of long-range bombers that could potentially fly over the United States. The Bomark was meant to be a defense against those types of aircraft. The anti-aircraft missile was a young enough technology that the Air Force didn't have a good way to designate it. So originally, the Bomark was referred to as an XF-99. And the F in XF stood for fighter. As in, Bomark was considered a pilotless aircraft, and fighters seemed to be the closest thing they could use to describe it. Now, eventually, the Air Force would change its designation system, and they renamed it the IM-99, with IM standing for Interception Missile. Boeing would test the prototype of the Bomark in 1952 and went into full production in 1955. The missile had some drawbacks. The biggest one was that the earlier version of the missile relied on liquid rocket fuel, and that liquid rocket fuel was highly corrosive. Because of that... You couldn't pre-fuel a missile before you had to use it. The fuel would actually corrode the interior of the fuel tank for that missile, making it unreliable or worse. So you had to hold off on fueling the things until it was time to use them. And the fueling process took about two minutes. And as you might imagine, every minute counts when you're potentially defending against an incoming aerial attack. So Boeing later addressed this problem by making a switch and they changed out the liquid rocket fuel motors with a solid fuel rocket booster. That lowered the response time for the so-called Super Bomark missile to less than 30 seconds. The company would produce 570 Bomark missiles, which became part of a network called the Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, or SAGE. They were kept inside launch shelters in remote locations you've probably seen 
stock footage of these things where these these big uh, hatches would open up and missiles would come out. It's that kind of stuff. But these weapons were meant as defense measure against bombers, you know, aircraft flying overhead. As the focus would shift to intercontinental ballistic missiles, the usefulness of these older Bomark missiles was determined to be you know, somewhat limited. And the military chose to decommission them in 1972. Now, I'm going to end this episode with a project that Boeing started in 1952. It was known as the 367-80, also called the Dash 80. Boeing gave the project name the 367-80 to disguise its real purpose because the name seemed to indicate that it was going to be a variant of the C-97 Stratofreighter. But this was actually a project to explore the possibility of producing jet-propelled commercial aviation aircraft. So in other words, passenger jets. And this wasn't a new idea. Boeing didn't invent this. In fact, the Boeing president of the time, Bill Allen, had been part of a group of Boeing executives that went to see a jet-powered airliner called the Haviland Comet. It flew in an air show in the UK. The Comet made its first test flight in 1949. And it entered into commercial service in 1952, the same year Boeing committed to exploring the possibility of getting into that same business in the United States. The Dash 80 took about two years from the launch of the project to the production of the first aircraft. And that first model, 367-80, debuted on May 14, 1954. William Boeing himself, who was 72 years old at that point, attended the event. The project had cost $16 million to fund. That represented about two-thirds of Boeing's profits since World War II. So this was a significant undertaking. The Dash 80 served as the basis for a new line of aircraft. Technically, two lines of aircraft. Boeing even started to gear up to go into full production, even though it had not yet received a single order, either from the military or from an airline like Pan Am. But the demonstration turned heads, and before long, the Air Force ordered a military version of the Dash 80. This one would be called the KC-135 Jet Tanker. The commercial side was a tougher sell. Boeing was up against its competitor, Douglas. With much wheeling and dealing, Boeing sales reps were able to land a contract with Pam Am to deliver 20 commercial versions of the Dash 80, which would be known as the 707. At the same time, Pan Am had also put in an order for 25 DC-8s from Douglas, so Boeing's long-term success in commercial jets was not yet assured. In our next episode, I'm going to continue looking at Boeing's history in commercial jets, as well as explore some of the technology behind the recent tragedies with the 737 MAX. And we'll talk more about the different layouts and configurations of these aircraft. And uh, hopefully you guys are finding this interesting. I'm finding it fascinating. I've always heard bits and pieces about Boeing, but this is the first time I've taken a deep dive into their history and the various aircraft and technologies they've been uh, instrumental in developing. And to me, it's pretty interesting stuff. If you guys have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, send me a message. You can email me at techstuffathowstuffworks.com or drop by our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find an archive of all of our past episodes, as well as links to where we are on social media. And you'll also find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. 
and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. Play.